Blog Talk Radio.
back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, Abayomi Anikaway. Uh Today is Saturday, March the 12th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to another edition uh, of our program. Later on, we'll be coming up uh, with our Pan-African Newswire report. We'll feature dispatches on the status of the nuclear power plants under the control of Russia during its military operations in Ukraine. Also, the patriarch of the Ethiopian Orthodox Christian Church has died at the age of 84. We'll have details on that as well. Another cyclone has hit uh, northern Mozambique. Uh, We'll have uh, further information. And 19 migrants are missing after their boat capsized off the coast of Libya. In the second and third hours, we continue our commemoration of Women's History Month with focuses on two civil rights activists and feminists, Ida B. Wells Barnett and Mary Church Terrell. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, We'll take a musical interlude with Shala Moana, and we'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back. <clears throat> You're listening to uh, the Pan African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe, and that was the beautiful music and voice of <clears throat> Shala Moana uh, from the Democratic Republic of Congo. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan African Newswire segment. <clears throat> These are some of the headlines uh, from uh, the Pan African Newswire for today. Our lead story uh, deals with the ongoing war in uh, Ukraine. Uh, according to the TASS news agency, the Russian delegation at talks with Ukraine, uh, which are held uh, via a video link, is <clears throat> led by Vladimir Medensky, the aide to uh, the president uh, of Russia, <clears throat> Vladimir Putin, as it was uh, during the face-to-face meetings in Belarus, uh, the Kremlin spokeswoman, Dmitry Peskov uh, told uh, the TASS news agency. <clears throat> From our part, delegation is still headed by Medensky. Uh, Peskov said uh, when asked about the participants in the Russian-Ukrainian talks held via video conference in recent days. Uh, earlier today, the Kremlin reported that Russian President Vladimir Putin told French President Emmanuel Macron and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz <clears throat> in their phone conversations about a series of talks held between Russian and Ukrainian representatives via video conference in recent days. On February the 28th, the first round of Russian-Ukrainian talks took place in the Gomel region. It lasted five hours. The second round uh, held on March 3rd, also in Belarus, uh, resulted in an agreement on humanitarian corridors for civilians. The third round took place in the Brest region of Belarus, on March the 7th, on March the 10th, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov and his Ukrainian counterpart, Dmitry Kuleba, met on the sidelines of the Antalya Diplomacy Forum that was held in Turkey. On February the 24th, Putin announced a special military operation in response to a request for help by the heads of the Donbass republics. Russia demands that uh, Ukraine uh, should be demilitarized and denazified, should have a non-aligned and non-nuclear status, should recognize Crimea as part of Russia, and recognize the sovereignty of the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics. In the meantime, the United States, the United Kingdom, and other states uh, slapped sanctions on uh, the Russian Federation. News, the International Atomic Energy Agency Director General Rafael Grossi is set to pay a visit to Kiev, the National Nuclear Energy Generating Company of Ukraine, in a Grotom, uh, said in a Telegram uh, channel. IAEA Director General Rafael Mariano Grossi is set to arrive in Kiev, the company said, citing the chief of uh, Piotr Kotin. According to Kotin, uh, the day of the visit has not yet been set. During the special military occupation uh, in Ukraine, uh, Russia's armed forces took control of the Chernobyl and the Zoporazhye nuclear power plants. Uh, Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova said at a briefing on Wednesday that the situation at both nuclear power plants is controlled jointly by the Russian servicemen, Ukrainian specialists, and the National Guard. According to her, statements from the Ukrainian side about an alleged 20-fold increase in the radiation level at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant do not correspond to reality. 
The International Atomic Energy Agency said on its Twitter feed uh, that it did not observe any critical breaches in the plant safety system. In this regard, Grossi urged to ensure safety of nuclear facilities in Ukraine and prevent radioactive pollution. On March the 12th, Russia notified the International Atomic Energy Agency that the management and operation of the Zaporozhka and the Chernobyl nuclear power plants uh, are carried out by the Ukrainian operating personnel. A group of several Russian experts devised them consultative systems. The document said, and in the Horn of Africa, state of Ethiopian uh, grieving worshippers, uh, church leaders, and Ethiopia's Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed gathered at the Moscow Square in Addis Ababa earlier today to pay tribute to the late patriarch Abuni Makorios. Uh, Ethiopia bid a last farewell to Abuni Makorios, uh, the country's fourth Orthodox patriarch, on Saturday. The clergyman who passed away at the age of 84 was a prominent figure of the country's recent history despite spending 27 years in exile. Grieving worshippers and church leaders, including current Ethiopian patriarch Abune Matthias and Ethiopia's prime minister, Abiy Ahmed, gathered at the Moscow Square in Addis Ababa to pay tribute to the late bishop. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Cyclone Gombe has slammed into northern Mozambique uh, with torrential winds and rain causing widespread damage to homes and infrastructure and causing at least one death. The cyclone, the latest of a series hitting southern Africa from the Indian Ocean, made landfall in Nampula province uh, earlier on Friday, toppling trees and ripping roofs off of homes and public buildings, according to witnesses. One resident of uh, Nampula City in Mozambique was electrocuted by a falling cable when he was trying to secure his roof, according to a report uh, from uh, the Mozambican TV Miramar. Electricity, water, and mobile phone service have been disrupted, making communications difficult. Amadi Abubata, a journalist living in Nampula, said he had been without power and water since this morning and that the telephone network is fluctuating. The city is paralyzed and commercial establishments and public institutions are closed, he said. Mobile operator Vodacom issued a statement indicating that it is working to restore its services in affected areas, while Mozambique's national airline, the LAM, canceled flights to and from the cities of Nampula, Nakala, uh, Kuyamani, and Pemba. Food aid uh, intended for distribution in the affected districts was damaged by rain after roofs were blown off warehouses, according to the National Institute of Disaster Management. After hitting the mainland, the cyclone has weakened slightly, according to Mozambique's Meteorological Institute, which reported that the cyclone's winds were 130 kilometers, that's 80 miles per hour, with gusts reaching up to 165 kilometers, that's 102 miles per hour. Heavy rains and very strong winds and thunderstorms are expected across Mozambique's central and northern provinces, according to the Meteorological Institute. And uh, finally, in the North African state of Libya, a boat carrying around two dozen migrants capsized in the Mediterranean Sea off the coast of Libya earlier today, with at least 19 people missing and presumed dead, authorities said. 
Libya's Coast Guard said that a group of 23 migrants, both Egyptians and Syrians, set off from the eastern city of Tobruk earlier in the day. Three migrants were rescued and taken to hospital. Only one body was retrieved, and search efforts uh, were ongoing, the agency said. The shipwreck is the latest tragedy at sea involving migrants trying to cross the Mediterranean from the North African nation in a desperate attempt to reach European shores. Uh, Libya has emerged as the dominant transit point for migrants fleeing the war and poverty in Africa and the Middle East, hoping for a better life in Europe. Human traffickers in recent years have benefited from the chaos in Libya, smuggling in migrants across the oil-rich country's lengthy borders with six nations. The migrants are then packed into ill-equipped rubber boats and set off on a risky sea voyage. At least 192 migrants drowned along the central Mediterranean route in the first two months of this year. The International Organization of Migration noted uh, more than 2,930 were intercepted and taken back to Libya. Once back, migrants are typically taken to government-run detention centers rife with abuse and ill treatment. In 2021, at least 32,425 migrants were intercepted and returned to Libya. At least 1,553 are presumed to have drowned last year, according to the International Organization for Migration. So we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of the most pressing and burning issues of today, uh, just log on to our site at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you would like to uh, have access to uh, this program, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for today, Saturday, uh, March 12, 2022, all you need to do is log on to the Pan-African Radio Network, that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. The programs can be shared with other listeners or potential listeners by just copying and pasting the links into emails, sending those emails out to other potential listeners. The, the links can be copied and pasted on the blogs and websites, as well as the links being shared through social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program.
Welcome back, and uh, that was the legendary uh, Mamie Smith uh, with the Crazy Blues, the uh, first major uh, hit uh, breakthrough of the great uh, African-American women uh, blues vocalists uh, of the 1920s. And uh, this is uh, Women's History Month, and uh, today we're going to continue our commemoration of this annual event. And, of course, uh, we're going to uh, focus once again on the life, legacy, and contributions of Ida B. Wells Barnett. This is uh, entitled Chicago Stories. looks at uh, various aspects of uh, Ida B. Wells Barnett origins, uh, professional life, literary career, as an activist, as a public speaker. Uh, let's listen in. Coming up. She was the ultimate agitator and feared because of it. As racial terror reigned over the South, there were close to 200 lynchings in Tennessee alone. A young African-American woman struck back with her pen. She was writing not just to inform, but to shame. She says, I'm going to challenge you on this threadbare lie that African-American men are lynched because they rape white women. She fled to Chicago, where she emerged as a radical black leader. There was never a time when Ida B. Wells was not getting pushed back, especially so in Chicago. And became an inspiration to a new generation. Black Lives Matter! Black Lives Matter is addressing the same issues that Ida B. Wells took up in the 1880s and 90s. Ida B. Wells. Next on Chicago Stories. Lead support for Ida B. Wells, a Chicago Stories special, is provided by the Nagani Foundation. Additional support is provided by Jim and Kay Maybe. Strategic Growth and Transformation Partners, and by the following donors. It seemed the entire world had come to Chicago in the summer of 1893. Most were so captivated by what they saw at the World's Fair, they were oblivious to what was missing. For one visitor, a 31-year-old African-American woman from Mississippi, the omission was glaring. The fair itself was a monument to extravagance, building after building constructed to display to the world how far America had advanced. Ida B. Wells had come to Chicago to point out what the fair's organizers had ignored. She was angry about the exclusion of the African-American story, especially the progress that African-Americans had made. Post-slavery, African-Americans started doing a lot of phenomenal things. They were elected to Congress. Um, They were elected to public offices locally. They became doctors and business people. But the signs of black culture Ida B. Wells found at the fair were mostly along the midway. 
and they represented stereotypes, not progress. Nancy Green, a 59-year-old former enslaved woman, proved a crowd favorite, playing the role of a southern mammy to promote a new pancake mix. Non-white nations were presented as savages or even sideshow acts. The slight was all the more appalling to Ida because she herself was a testament to the strides made by slavery survivors. Since her emancipation, she had become a widely published journalist. So it's like, let's show the world what a great country we are without showing any of the contributions of black Americans. Ida's friend, Frederick Douglass, was the notable exception. He was the only black American in charge of a pavilion, one built by the nation of Haiti. The Haitian government are the ones that invited him. So he wasn't even invited by the United States. And he was one of the most famous, you know, people in the country at that time. The irony didn't escape Ida B. Wells. It seems strange to me that but for an accident, Mr. Douglas would have had no part in the World's Fair because of race prejudice in this country. Yet whenever he went out into the grounds, he was literally swamped by white persons who wanted to shake his hand. And so, Ida stood at the entrance to the Haitian pavilion, handing out copies of a pamphlet. A clear, plain statement of facts concerning the oppression put upon the colored people in this land of the free and home of the brave. It's around 90 pages. It's really like a little book. And Ida's the only woman <laughs> represented in the book. Wells had written it with Douglas and two other men. She's also the one who raised the majority of the money um, to have the pamphlet published. So you have these three men that are willing to sort of be led by a woman. So this, to me, is her publication. The exhibit of progress made by a race in 25 years of freedom against 250 years of slavery would have been the greatest tribute to the greatness and progressiveness of American institutions, which could have been shown the world. The preface was written in English, French, and German. She was standing in front of the Haitian pavilion every single day, handing out the pamphlet with the idea that people would go from this fair all over the world and say, what the heck is going on in the United States? It was simply savvy strategy, and uh, Ida was a savvy woman. Ida B. Wells' battles at the World's Fair were just getting started. But if there was one thing she had shown in her 31 years before coming to Chicago, she never went down without a fight. Ida Bell Wells was born into slavery six months before emancipation in Holly Springs, Mississippi, to James and Lizzie Wells. James was actually the product of the slave owner going into slave quarters. So, allegedly, he did receive better treatment than other slaves. Lizzie was one of ten children. All of them were parceled out and sold, sold to different places, and she didn't see her siblings after that happened. When freedom came, 
Ida and her parents remained on the estate of their former enslaver, and James continued to work there. But now, he was paid for his labor. There was extreme ambition during this period. African Americans were really committed to moving into the mainstream of American life as quickly as possible with as many skills as they could acquire. James Wells joined the board of trustees of the newly founded Rust College. Ida's mother attended school alongside her eight children until she could read. James had, you know, friends of his come over to the house and they would read the newspaper. They asked Ida to read the newspaper to them because, you know, a lot of people were not literate. Ida B. Wells doesn't come out of nowhere. She had parents who were very excited about their newfound freedom. And she observed her father, especially his political activism. I heard the words Ku Klux Klan long before I knew what they meant. I knew dimly that it meant something fearful by the anxious way my mother walked the floor at night when my father was out to a political meeting. Four years after emancipation, her father got his first opportunity to vote. Suddenly, James Wells found himself at odds with his now employer. He challenged even his employer, who demanded that James Wells vote on the Democratic ticket, and James Wells refused. And then he found that his former master had locked him out of the shop where he was working, and James Wells didn't argue with him. He just went to town, bought a new set of tools, and opened up a new trade as a carpenter. There was optimism and hope as far as every citizen is entitled to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And Ida took that seriously. But Ida's world would be turned upside down when she was 16 years old. It was the summer she left home to visit her grandmother's farm. There was an epidemic of, of yellow fever that went throughout the country, and particularly in the South. She knew that people had fled Holly Springs and assumed that her parents and siblings were among those people. But then one day some people came to her grandmother's farm and handed her a note saying that both of her parents had died. Ida was 16 years old at the time, and against her grandmother and several other people's um, advice, she decided to get on a train and go back to Holly Springs. She returned to find that her youngest brother had also died. Well-meaning charity workers were already there and busy making plans. There was talk of how different people were going to take different responsibility for Ida's siblings. And Ida was like, no, you know, we're not, we're not dividing the family. We don't do that. She had grown up hearing stories from her mother about being separated, sold from her family. So there was supposedly a shotgun on the mantle. And she got the shotgun. I was like, look, I'm going to take care of family. Like, oh, why didn't you say so? Sixteen-year-old Ida found work as a teacher and took on the role of breadwinner with the help of her grandmother. After teaching a country school all week, I came home Friday afternoon, six miles out from town, and spent the time from then until Monday morning washing clothes, cooking food, 
and preparing things so they could do without me until the end of the next week. Ida's Aunt Fanny saw the family was struggling and eventually invited them to live with her. They hopped on a train bound for the big city. She moves to Memphis, and Memphis is the place to be. It's, it's a metropolitan city. It is a transportation center, even in the 1800s, for the entire world. She saw it as exciting as a young woman. We shouldn't be surprised by this. She was a shopper. <laughs> she liked to look nice. She often talks about her expenses exceeding her income, in part because she was supporting siblings. But the other part, too, is that Ida was a clothes horse. You know, she enjoyed shopping downtown. Although Ida had hoped to secure a teaching post in Memphis, she'd settled at a small school in Woodstock, Tennessee, a short train ride away. But a fateful ride along the Chesapeake rail line would carry her on a much different path. Just weeks after her 21st birthday, Ida boarded the morning train to Woodstock, a first-class ticket in hand. She was dressed in white gloves and a corset, carrying a parasol. She was petite. She was a little under five feet and very well-dressed, very obviously very well-spoken. During Reconstruction, blacks had the rights. So she had written on that car several times over the, the past couple of years and was entitled to do it. She chose the seat towards the back of the first-class rail car. But minutes later, the train's conductor brusquely informed her that she was seated in the ladies' car, a fact Ida was well aware of. The conductor insisted she move to the smoking car, a lower-class carriage where men could often be found cussing and gambling. As I was in the ladies' car, I proposed to stay. He tried to drag me out of the seat, but the moment he caught hold of my arm, I fastened my teeth in the back of his hand. It took three men to forcibly remove her from the rail car, in which uh, she put up a fight, literal fight. And when she was removed from the car, the passengers cheered. You talk about something that infuriates someone, um, that absolutely infuriated her. Ida struck back by filing suit against the railroad company. She sued the, the Chesapeake Railroad and won and was awarded $500. The judge found the railroad company had violated the law by forcing Wells to ride in a car that was separate but unequal. But the lower court's decision would not stand. The Tennessee Supreme Court essentially attacked her personally to say that she was just being disruptive, that she wasn't a lady as she pretended to be. I have firmly believed all along that the law was on our side and would, when we appeal to it, give us justice. I feel shorn belief and utterly discouraged. And just now, if it were possible, would gather my race in my arms and fly away with them. When we think about the modern civil rights movement in Rosa Parks, she has the NAACP behind her. In 1884, it's just Ida B. Wells and her attorney. Ida B. Wells was starting to make a name for herself. She took a teaching job in Memphis and joined a lyceum founded by black teachers. It was a community of sort of thinkers and artists and 
She actually took elocution classes, which is speaking classes. Um, and in her diary, she writes about how she was like trying to scrape up the money to pay for her next lesson. And so you wonder like, what in the world was she preparing herself for? But she was honing her skills. Each program ended with a reading from the Evening Star, a gossip-filled newspaper, which Ida called a spicy journal. She was shocked when asked to start writing for it. As Ida B. Wells first put pen to paper, she found writing to be nothing short of a revelation. She felt like she could sort of explore more of who she was and express who she was through writing more than she ever could in teaching. I wrote in a plain, common-sense way on the things which concerned our people. Knowing that their education was limited, I never used the word of two syllables where one would serve the purpose. I signed these articles, Iola. When Ida B. Wells first starts writing, she was writing about the things that one would expect uh, a woman who's writing for a church publication to write for. But that started to change pretty early on. As a school teacher, Ida starts to document the segregation in the schools and how the black schools were not getting the same resources and the educational inequities. She wrote an article in 1889 about the Memphis school system, because, which is unfortunate because the article could be literally printed today and you wouldn't know the difference. She railed against her fellow educators. Some of these teachers had little to recommend them save an illicit relationship with members of the school board. You have to think about the type of person who will start writing editorials and news articles about their own employer. But that's what she was doing. She did not get fired immediately. When the next school year came up, they didn't renew her contract. While teaching had served a practical purpose, writing was now Ida's true passion. She bought a partnership in the most radical black newspaper in Memphis, the Free Speech and Headlight, and became its editor. The paper's circulation tripled. What's unique about that moment is not only is she African-American at this time, but she's also a woman. And being a woman in a Victorian America, uh, where she is essentially playing the role of what was then considered what men do. Ida B. Wells was ascending at a precarious moment. As she and other newly emancipated African-Americans made waves, white supremacist fervor flooded the South. We kind of gloss over this period as if once the South is beaten in the Civil War, uh, that all of a sudden white Southerners just acquiesce to the people whom they had enslaved now coming into power, serving in political office. That is not the case. Black freedom, black political power was always contested. And so all across the South, we saw black men, women, and children being lynched. It wasn't a secret. It wasn't considered shameful. Newspapers would advertise that a lynching was going to occur to give these crowds a chance to come and watch. One such murder would change the course of Ida's life. She was spending the week in Natchez, Mississippi on newspaper business when word came that three men had been lynched in Memphis. Calvin McDowell, 
Will Stewart, and Thomas Moss. Moss was like a brother to Ida. Thomas Moss and Moss's wife were essentially her best friends here in Memphis. She was so close to Thomas Moss, Tommy. Uh, she was godmother to his child. Everybody in town knew and loved Tommy, an exemplary young man. He and his wife, Betty, were the best friends I had in town. Three years before their murders, Moss and his friends had opened a store called The People's Grocery. The People's Grocery was located in South Memphis in an area that at the time was called The Curve. The Curve was a predominantly black community, and so you have these three black men that decide they're going to open up a grocery store in their own community. But their new grocery put them in direct competition with William Barrett, a white store owner making money off the black community. William Barrett was infuriated, like, how can these people take business away from him? What started as an innocent game of marbles outside the people's grocery grew heated. And the interesting part is this was an integrated game of marble with white children, white boys, and, and black boys. There was a fight, and eventually uh, adults uh, joined into this skirmish. The white store owner was injured. He convinced the county sheriff to deputize him and gathered a posse. They came late at night, this group of white men, the people, grocery owners, including Thomas Moss. They knew that they were coming. They, they'd gotten word. So they were prepared for this, and they armed themselves and they were in the store when they got there. And that was, a, that was a fight. Several white deputies were wounded. The headlines talked about rounding up every Negro that was involved. Ida's friend, Thomas Moss, was arrested with Will Stewart and Calvin McDowell and held at the Shelby County Jail. But then a lynch mob decided that they were going to exact their own uh, justice. And so they went to the jail and took them to a sort of a rail yard north of there and killed them. Shot them, beat them, um, just lynched them. I do think that we should take a second and really explicate what that word means. Lynching was not simply tying a rope around someone's neck and hanging them, though that is uh, brutal um, and inhumane enough. Lynching was designed directly to send a message to the larger black population. In the South, in many places, black people were in the majority. So how does a white minority that has lost power and wants to gain that power back uh, do that when they are in the minority? It was through terrorism. Lynching had become a common and accepted punishment for black men who had allegedly raped white women. But now Ida B. Wells, who'd grown accustomed to the brutality of Southern justice, began to wonder. Like many another person who had read of lynching in the South, I had accepted the idea meant to be conveyed. That although lynching was irregular and contrary to law and order, unreasoning anger over the terrible crime of rape led to the lynching. That perhaps the brute deserved death anyhow, and the mob was justified in taking his life. After Thomas Moss 
who really was lynched because he was competing with a white business owner. Something clicks in Ida, uh, a vengeful spirit, I think. And she decides that she's going to focus on the lie of lynching really for the rest of her career. Ida set out in search of the truth. Notebook in hand, she traveled across the South, interviewing eyewitnesses. There was no grasp of exactly how many black people were being lynched. She would find uh, where lynchings were occurring by looking through white newspapers. And she began to keep basically spreadsheets. Of the 728 murders she investigated, Wells found that only a third of the victims had actually been accused of crimes. She sat down to pen a blistering editorial. Eight Negroes lynched since the last issue of the free speech. Three were charged with killing white men and five with raping white women. Nobody in this section believes the old threadbare lie that Negro men assault white women. Her writing was uh, used to create a sense of outrage and uh, every word was chosen for that manner. Her writing had this simmering rage. She was writing not just to inform, but to shame. If Southern white men are not careful, they will overreach themselves and a conclusion will be reached, which will be very damaging to the moral reputation of their women. Within days, Edward Ward Carmack, editor of the Memphis Commercial Appeal, reprinted Ida's editorial. And she got the attention of the white community and certainly the white press. Unaware that the author of the editorial was a woman, Carmack called on the men of Memphis to avenge the honor of Southern ladies. Quote, the black wretch who had written that foul lie should be tied to a stake at the corner of Main and Madison Streets. A pair of tailor's shears used on him, and he should then be burned at a stake. The white community of Memphis was outraged. A mob of angry whites converged on the offices of the free speech on Beale Street. Finding the newspaper deserted, they demolished the presses and destroyed the offices. But by then, Ida B. Wells had already fled Memphis. By the time Ida arrived in Chicago for the World's Fair, she had been traveling more than a year. She had lost everything at age 30. Not only her physical property and her printing press, but also her friends, which is no small thing. Having lost my paper, had a price put on my life, and been made an exile from home for hinting at the truth, I felt that I owed it to myself and to my race to tell the whole truth now that I was where I could do so freely. Ida B. Wells circulated 10,000 copies of The Reason Why the Colored American is Not in the World's Columbian Exposition. Her plea for inclusion was largely ignored. Though the fair's organizers made one token concession, August 25th was designated Colored American Day. Frederick Douglass arranged the program, but Ida refused to even attend. We resented this sop to our pride in this belated way, and we thought Mr. Douglass ought not to have accepted. I was among those who differed with our grand old man. 
But Ida had another mission at the World's Fair. With the eyes of the world on Chicago, she would use the international stage to expose the terror of lynching. She was probably more looking at it as an amazing opportunity to get the message out and hit thousands of people all at the same time from all over the world. Her message was growing more militant, sharpened through her internationally published works, Southern Horrors and A Red Record. She pulled no punches in describing how armed blacks had beaten back lynch mobs. The lesson this teaches, and which every Afro-American should ponder well, is that a Winchester rifle should have a place of honor in every black home, and it should be used for that protection which the law refuses to give. I would call Ida B. Wells someone who was very comfortable hanging out in the left, you know, which, which was not very comfortable for people who were sort of straddling the middle or to the right. At the close of the World's Fair, Ida B. Wells set out to find allies for her anti-lynching campaign. For a year, she crossed the globe. Her motivating factor was to inform the world about how this country was treating its own citizens. If you're going to go to the root of the problem, you've got to find support among uh, white so she was uh, very good at building allies and very strategic. By the time Ida returned to Chicago in 1895, she'd been a refugee from the South for three years. Despite her many successes, she was financially strained and weary, in need of an anchor. She found just that in Ferdinand Barnett. He was 10 years older than, than Ida when they got married, so that would have made him 43. Ferdinand was a widower. He liked strong black women. Met Ida, he was like, yeah, um, we're gonna need to get married. <laughs> His first contact with Ida B. Wells is because she needs a lawyer. Frederick Douglass recommends Ferdinand Barnett Barnett was the third African-American lawyer admitted to the Illinois bar and the owner of Chicago's first black newspaper, The Conservator. Their wedding was announced in black newspapers nationwide and in a highly unusual move in the New York Times. This was the same newspaper that a few years earlier had called Ida a slanderous and nasty-minded mulattress because of her writing about lynchings. And now her wedding announcement occurs in that very same paper, the New York Times, the paper of record. Wells took the hyphenated name Ida B. Wells Barnett, and she also took over Ferdinand's newspaper. Having always been busy at some work of my own, I decided to continue work as a journalist, for this was my first, and might be said, my only love. The conservator circulation of about a thousand readers represented a healthy chunk of Chicago's roughly 6,000 African Americans. But the city's black population was growing. Ida B. Wells and two dozen more arrive in Chicago in the 1890s and thus put themselves 
in a position to be the institution builders of black Chicago. Ida and Ferdinand lived alongside most of the city's African Americans in a narrow strip of Southside land known as the Black Belt. Its boundaries were often enforced by violence. If you go west of State Street, you're in the Stockyards community, a largely Irish community, and you're likely to get beaten or killed. You're not going to move too far east because middle-class whites don't want you there, and they certainly don't want you on the lakefront. So it's about four blocks wide, but it keeps moving southward. This will be the hub of the African-American community. And what's important here is that it is entirely self-sufficient. African-Americans find employment within their own community. African-Americans build businesses, newspapers, their political leadership. African-Americans are virtually institutionally complete within these southward migrating communities, uh, which came to be called Black Metropolis. Ida took delight in the community's cultural riches. There were churches, Olivet Baptist, Bethel AME, and Quinn Chapel AME. And there were black social organizations. Ida B. Wells Barnett took her place among the cream of the 400, a social registry of Chicago's black elite. Ida B. Wells and Ferdinand Barnett were the political power couple, certainly in the African-American community in Chicago. The couple gave birth to their first child, Charles, in 1896. Ferdinand hired a nurse so Ida could return to the lecture circuit with their newborn baby. Ferdinand was attracted to the fact that she was out there doing things, and he provided the support for her to continue doing that. I honestly believe that I am the only woman in the United States who ever traveled throughout the country with a nursing baby to make political speeches. The following year, Ida gave birth to Herman, then Ida Jr., and finally, Alfreda in quick succession. This is a woman who's quite aware of the sacrifices she was making as a mother and the sacrifices her children had to make because she was often on the road. While Ida B. Wells Barnett continued to shine a light on injustice through journalism, she also started looking to politics as an agent for change. In this new arena, she faced the same obstacle as every other American woman. She could not vote. So instead, women like Wells made their voices heard through women's clubs. These were enormously popular and also beginning to be very influential and powerful. They were really the, the means by which women could have some influence in society. Ida helped found the League of Colored Women. Her supporters even created an Ida B. Wells Club. The women's clubs were an opportunity for women to pursue some self-education. And then they began to move from there into improving education for children, beginning kindergartens, beginning libraries, and ultimately to lobby government about getting the right to vote. 
As Ida B. Wells Barnett found opportunities in Chicago's civic life, she now started urging Southern blacks to flee north as she had. Literally, she told people in the South, like, look, come north. It's, it's not perfect. I'm telling you it's not perfect, but it's way better than what you're experiencing. And so people would come. Because the new migrants had only one neighborhood to choose, the Black Belt was swelling. The beating heart of the Black Belt was now a strip of South State Street known as the Stroll. This was where the action took place. There were juke joints, restaurants, hidden gambling dens, and people constantly walking or promenading from about 2,700 South down to about 3,500 South. And so people could prominently show off their clothes, their gait. You didn't walk, you strutted. But cracks were forming in the black belt. As new migrants met up against the forces of segregation, housing became scarce and crowded. The Barnetts refused to be contained. They moved to a new home at 3234 Rhodes Avenue, making them one of the first black families to move east of State Street. Ida B. Wells was known to keep a gun in the house for protection. The political statement that they're going to live anywhere they can, people like Ida B. Wells were committed to the idea that segregation in any form was an insult to African Americans. The Southern migrants still stuck in the Black Belt were often viewed as outsiders in their own community. Hordes of ignorant and dissolute, said one white reformer, to describe the Southern blacks who, quote, lowered the standard of the colored population in our midst. To distance themselves from such insult, longtime black Chicagoans formed a society limited to those who could prove their families had lived in the city at least 30 years. They called themselves the Old Settlers Club. Many of the old settlers are successful largely because of relations they've established with wealthy whites. These African-Americans find the new African-Americans as a threat to their leadership. They're not as polished. They're not as mannered. Uh, as somebody once told me, the problem is they didn't work for white people. Ida B. Wells would make it clear which side of this social divide she stood on in 1906. She had been elected to organize a charity ball for the Frederick Douglass Center, built in memory of her old friend who had passed. The previous year's gala had been held at the prestigious Masonic Temple downtown. But Ida instead set her sights on the boisterous stroll and a rich Southside hustler named Robert T. Motts. Now, Robert T. Motts was a gambler, fairly shady person. But Robert Motts went to Paris, discovered Parisian entertainment, decided that his community needed something like that, a place where African-Americans could put on plays, uh, write comedies, enjoy African-American music. Motts already had the location, a disreputable saloon in the heart of the stroll. Robert T. Motts, however, he gained his money, was rich. 
And so he had the money to invest in something that he could be proud of. Mott's Peking Theater was his chance to turn over a new leaf. When he gave Ida B. Wells a tour, she saw the makings of a first-class establishment. The place is beautiful. She thought it provided class because it moved him away from selling booze. She liked the idea that it provided an opportunity to see African-American artistic excellence. I felt that the race owed Mr. Motts a debt of gratitude for giving us a theater in which we could sit anywhere we chose without any restrictions. When Ida announced her event would be held at the Peking, many in black high society were outraged. Citing Mott's reputation, the Chicago Daily News refused to even print the announcement. But the loudest assault came from the neighborhood churches. African-American ministers spearheaded by Archibald Carey Sr. campaigned against holding an event for the African-American elite in a place like the New Pekin Theater. He, he gave sermons about it. Not only at his own church, he gave sermons at other churches. Ida B. Wells hated hypocrisy. She'd been a member of Bethel AME, and she remembers when a former pastor had been guilty of inappropriate relations with members of his congregation and had been expelled, only to be brought back with the support of people like Archibald Carey. Ida moved ahead with her charity ball, and despite threats of a boycott, it raised $500. It was eminently successful. It cemented a friendship between Robert T. Motts and Ida B. Wells until his death. The Peking was the first black-owned theater in Chicago. It would give the city some of its first taste of ragtime, making way for other jazz clubs on the stroll where the likes of Louis Armstrong and Cab Calloway played. And Ida B. Wells had supported it, despite the objections of African-American leaders. She challenged the black elite. She challenged the black political organization. She challenged white leadership. But she was willing to step on toes because she had a larger purpose. The black migration from the South that exposed fault lines in Chicago was also ratcheting up tensions across America. In 1908, the nation saw more than 80 lynchings in every corner of the country. It happens in the Northeast. We hear a lot less about lynchings, but of course, wherever black people go, lynching follows as a tool of social control. A lynching in Springfield, Illinois that summer would once again change the course of Ida B. Wells' career. In Abraham Lincoln's hometown, two black men were jailed, one accused of murdering a white man, the other falsely charged with the rape of a white woman. A lynch mob of roughly 5,000 whites assembled. They stormed the east side of the city where blacks lived, lynching innocent men and burning the neighborhood to cinders. At least seven people were killed before the Illinois Guard brought the riot under control. I had such a feeling of impotency through the whole matter, which seemed to be becoming as bad in Illinois as it had hitherto been in Georgia. The following Sunday, 
Wells was hosting her weekly Bible study for young men when the conversation turned to the horrific events in Springfield. The young people she was meeting with were so appalled by the violence that took place. The nature of those meetings goes from being um, more about their faith and more and more about what they can do about racial oppression. They continue to meet every Sunday, calling themselves the Negro Fellowship League. And the group turned its attention to the needs of black men who had come north in search of opportunity, only to lose their way on the stroll. The stroll could have a negative effect on the life of a young male migrant. Because beyond the cigar shop along State Street, beyond the outer doors in the back was a place where you could gamble. Ida's friend Jane Adams had been concerned with the plight of immigrant women and children, and she had created Hull House to serve them. But there was nowhere for young African-American men to turn for help. They weren't welcome at institutions like the YMCA. All other races in the city are welcomed into settlements. YMCAs, YWCAs, gymnasiums, and every other movement for uplift if only their skins are white. Only one social center welcomes the Negro, and that is the saloon. Being from the South, she knew what kind of conditions people were coming from. I think she felt like she could relate to them on a personal level. Her dream, you know, was to create sort of the black hole house, if you want to call it that. Ida B. Wells unexpectedly found a sponsor for her vision at a Palmer House luncheon. Jesse Lawson was the wife of the wealthy editor of the Chicago Daily News. The Lawsons, who were donors to the Y, MCA were unaware that it was not serving blacks in Chicago. Ida told Jesse Lawson about her dreams for the Negro Fellowship League, and they set out to find a location. That location in her mind had to be in the midst of where the greatest need lay. And that was along State Street at the north end of the stroll. Ida B. Wells Barnett opened the Negro Fellowship League on a warm Sunday with a program for the neighborhood. As the room filled, they left the back door open to let in the breeze. But before long, the program was interrupted by the boisterous sounds of a group of drunken men outside, shooting dice with a pail of beer. Rather than call the police, Wells set out to invite them to the next Sunday meeting. And so when she goes into the alley to talk to those men who are drinking and, and playing dice, you know, she, she doesn't have any airs about her. Wells recalled their surprise when she extended her white-gloved hand to shake on their promise to return. They all said they didn't want to dirty my white gloves by shaking hands, but reiterated that they would go away and also repeated their promise to come next Sunday. There were black people who were from, quote, upper class who wouldn't even come visit the center because it was in a location that they didn't feel comfortable visiting. My great-grandparents were unique. They were both educated, 
but at the same time they were willing to go into the hood. <laughs> Ida had built a beacon on the stroll, a place where men could find jobs, housing, legal help, and moral upliftment. I think she felt a tremendous responsibility. She's telling black folks, leave the South, and yet she's seeing people come and they are suffering, and no one is looking out for them, not even other black Chicagoans. But Ida B. Wells would feel the impact of that awful Springfield riot in another way. In the riot's wake, Ida and other activists received an invitation from Oswald Garrison Villard, grandson of the abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison. His letter, known as The Call, proposed a conference to discuss present evils. The following spring, luminaries like W.E.B. Du Bois and Jane Addams gathered in New York. On the first day of the conference, Ida B. Wells Barnett delivered a forceful speech on her 20 years of lynching research. This is what Ida B. Wells was doing around the issue of lynching. She takes lynching from a fringe issue that no one really, black or white, will touch, and she turns it into a central issue. At the close of the conference, the activists agreed to start a new organization. It would become known as the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Although Ida was initially chosen to be on the NAACP's founding committee, as a last minute, Du Bois substituted her name. My guess is that people like W.B. Du Bois were sexist. And I think we have to call that. He did not promote easily African-American female leadership. Secondly, the leadership of the NAACP from the beginning largely addressed to the African-American middle class and to the African-American upper middle class. But Ida B. Wells' campaigns had become increasingly geared toward the poorest of the poor. And despite her impassioned speech about lynching, the NAACP was not ready to confront the crisis she'd dedicated her career to. The NAACP, which Ida helped co-found, even though she doesn't often get the, the name recognition and credit for that, didn't want to touch that issue. It was something about the ideas that Ida had about, for example, lynching having its base in sexual relations. It, it was their thought that uh, this was a no-no. This, in fact, was something blacks like Du Bois wouldn't approach because he knew that white people would be offended by this discussion. Ida B. Wells, now 50 years removed from slavery, still did not have the power to vote. But she had joined Illinois women in a partial victory. In June of 1913, women in Illinois can vote in the presidential election and they can vote in local municipal elections, but they cannot vote, for example, for governor or for senator. Encouraged, Ida B. Wells took up the suffrage cause with new fervor. Noting that white suffragists were working like beavers, she established the Alpha Suffrage Club. Their slogan, race interest first, last, and all the time. 
The club mobilized black women in the Black Belt Second Ward and eventually helped elect Chicago's first black alderman. Those are ordinary women, not the high uh, polluting black women of Chicago. Ordinary women were told they had worth and could make a change in society. That spring, Ida B. Wells set her sights on Washington, D.C. On the day before Woodrow Wilson's inauguration, she boarded a train bound for the National Suffrage Parade. Wells travels with the Illinois delegation. She gets to Washington, D.C. There are state delegations from all over the United States, and Illinois is very large. They've got drum majors. Wells and 250,000 women approached Pennsylvania Avenue. But Alice Paul, the lead parade planner, had a last-minute concern. Southern white women wouldn't march if they had to do so alongside black women. Planners suddenly asked that the black delegates march separately, in the back. Ida B. Wells Barnett was struck by the news. So Wells says, of course, I'm not going to do that. I came here with my delegation from Illinois. I intend to march with my delegation. And they march anyway, all together. And so the march is integrated. And it's just classic Wells. I mean, she stands for her principles no matter what. Though her Negro Fellowship League had now been serving men on the stroll for 10 years, Ida B. Wells was struggling to keep it afloat. Her wealthy friends admired her dedication, but wouldn't venture to the stroll and work among the uneducated, unemployed black men. I don't know if she originally thought she would be doing this work by herself. I think she expected and was hoping for other people to be as outraged as she was and to get in the trenches and fight. And she had never received the kind of wealthy patronage Jane Addams secured for Hull House. By the winter of 1920, the Negro Fellowship League's rent was in arrears, and Ida B. Wells was finally forced to close its doors. It is important that when we think about the strength of this black woman, when we think about the strength of black women, that we never forget that it always comes with a cost. And it certainly, um, it took a toll on her. It took a toll on her physically. When Ida B. Wells Barnett was 68 years old, she attended a book reading with her oldest daughter. The subject was a book by Carter G. Woodson, the man who created Black History Month. But Ida was dismayed to discover that her anti-lynching efforts weren't even mentioned. She met a young woman who had heard her name but didn't know what she did. That was stunning for her that she herself was not known by a new generation. So, she sat down to put her story on paper. In the first pages of her autobiography, Ida B. Wells explained, The history of this entire period, which reflected glory on the race, should be known. Yet most of it is buried in oblivion. And so, 
because our youth are entitled to the facts of race history, which only the participants can give, I am thus led to set forth the facts. I guess it was her story, but it's also the history of our country. Ida B. Wells' unfinished autobiography ended mid-sentence. A fitting reflection, perhaps, of a woman who knew there's still more work to be done. In March of 1931, Ida B. Wells Barnett awoke with a worrisome fever. She died a few days later. She is buried next to Ferdinand Barnett, her partner for more than 30 years. Ida B. Wells and Ferdinand L. Barnett, Crusaders for Justice. And put it down. Yeah. I am a native Chicagoan. And there was an Ida B. Wells Holmes on the south side of Chicago. Most people had heard the name, but it got to a point where it was just a disconnect between who Ida B. Wells as a woman was and the work that she did and what people associated with her name. In February of 2019, Ida B. Wells Drive became Chicago's first street named for an African-American woman. The next year, Wells was posthumously honored with a Pulitzer Prize. New York Times writer Nicole Hannah-Jones won her Pulitzer Prize the same day. When I found out that I had won the Pulitzer on the same day as my spiritual godmother, Ida B. Wells, a woman who did not receive that type of recognition in her life and never would have, um, I cried like a baby. No justice! Recently, a multitude of young activists and justice seekers are taking up the work of Ida B. Wells. For older historians, the reason why is simple. Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter is addressing the same issues that Ida B. Wells took up in the 1880s and 90s. Moreover, Black Lives Matter has a considerable component of black female leadership. I need for these racist systems to be dismantled. What we need is equity. What we need is recovery. They're taking to the streets. Police! They're writing essays. They're organizing cadres. Black Lives Matter, women are faith, and we believe in fighting. They are addressing systemic violence more broadly than simply the issue of police brutality. I want jobs and resources in black and brown communities on the south and west sides of Chicago. Violence is caused by economic disparity, is caused by the increasing gap between the rich and the poor, and that is exemplified by the city. This is Ida B. Wells. In the last and unfinished chapter of her autobiography, Ida B. Wells offered words of wisdom to future generations, writing, Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Ida B. Wells was clearly outstanding and unique. There's no doubt about that. But I think what she would say is use your talent to the best of your ability to see her life as an example of what it takes to create change and the price. But not to glorify her or make her out of reach of the actions of ordinary people.
Welcome back. And uh, that was a documentary on the lifetimes and contributions of Ida B. Wells Barnett. And uh, this is uh, Women's uh, History Month uh, here at the Pan-African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, uh, March the 12th, uh, 2022. Uh, We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And we'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more. Coming up, she was the ultimate agitator. Blue 
the voice of uh, the epic uh, Blanche uh, Calloway uh, with the tune entitled Blue Memories. And uh, continuing our programming uh, for Women's History Month uh, 2022, we want to turn uh, to the lifetimes and contributions of Mary Church Terrell, uh, who was uh, born in Memphis, Tennessee uh, in 1863, who uh, was educated uh, at Oberlin College as well as in uh, Europe. Uh, she was a co-founder of the National Association of Pellet Women's Clubs, a key aspect of the women's club movement uh, founded by African-American women uh, during uh, the 1890s. And, uh, of course, an advocate uh, of uh, feminist issues uh, related to uh, universal franchise uh, and civil rights, as well as uh, international affairs. Uh, let's listen uh, to uh, this uh, interview uh, with scholar Allison Parker, who wrote a book entitled Unceasing Militant uh, on uh, the Life and Contributions of Mary Church Terrell. Good evening. Welcome to this evening's event, Mary Church Terrell, the face of African-American women's suffrage activism with Professor Allison Parker. The Frederick Douglass Institute for African and African-American Studies is proud to co-sponsor this event with the Susan B. Anthony Institute of Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies, alongside the Black Alumni Network and the Women's Network, in partnership with Susan B. Anthony Center and the Paul J. Burgett Intercultural Center and Gandhi Institute for Nonviolence. I would also want to say thank you to our captioners and interpreters who are helping ensure that this program is accessible. Before we get started, I wanted to mention some few, a few housekeeping uh, things. Uh, might be helpful Zoom tips for you out there in the virtual world. If you would like to ask a question, please submit it anytime through the Q&A function that is located at the bottom of the screen. Today's event articulates an important part of the study of black life and black struggle, the role of intersectionality, particularly being black and woman in history and our present. As a black feminist thinker and doer, the importance of Mary Church Terrell as a visionary educator and activist within and outside black communities cannot be overstated. I remember reading a speech she delivered in 1908, a significant year for many of you out there, where she stated that, quote, the incomparable Frederick Douglass did many things of which I, as a member of that race, which he served so faithfully, am well proud. But there is nothing he ever did in his long and brilliant career in which I take keener pleasure and greater pride than I do in his ardent advocacy of equal political rights for women and the effective service he rendered to the cause of women's suffrage. Let us never forget that one of the forefathers of black studies was indeed a feminist. And today's lecture and its partnership is a key reminder that this legacy yet remains. Today, we will hear more about the esteemed Mary Church Terrell from Professor Allison Parker. Allison M. Parker is History Department Chair and Richards Professor of African American, of American History at the University of Delaware. She has, a re she, has, she has research and teaching interests at the intersections of gender, race, disability, citizenship, and the law in U.S. history. Allison Parker is the author of two books. Articulating Rights, 19th Century American Women on Race, 
Reform, and the State, and the book from which her talk is drawn today, Unceasing Militant, The Life of Mary Church Terrell. As director of the Frederick Douglass Institute of African and African American Studies, I am glad to introduce Professor Allison Parker. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here with you today. Let me work on sharing my screen. Okay. Um, hello. I want to start just by thanking John Cullen, Jessica Guzman Ray for inviting me, and Caroline Tolbert for organizing this event along with all the many co-sponsors. What I'd like to talk with you about today is Black women's suffrage activism through the life and activism of the feminist, suffragist, and civil rights activist Mary Church Terrell. Terrell is best known as the first president of the National Association of Colored Women, or NACW, in 1896, and as a founding member of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP, in 1909. She was the first Black woman to graduate with a bachelor's and a master's degree from a predominantly white college, Oberlin College, and she then taught at the nation's best segregated public school, the M Street High School in Washington, D.C., and was then appointed as the first Black woman on its Board of Education. Carol had first publicly expressed her support for women's suffrage at the National Council of Women's Convention in 1891. The first large suffrage meeting which I attended was the one in Washington at which women who were interested in the subject were present from all over the world. Among the women sitting on the platform that at that meeting were Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Miss Anthony. The presiding officer requested that all those to rise who believed that women should have the franchise. Although the theater was well filled at the time, comparatively few rose. I was among the number who did. I forced myself to stand up, although it was hard for me to do so. In the early 1890s, it required a great deal of courage for a woman publicly to acknowledge before an audience that she believed in suffrage for her sex when she knew the majority did not. Carol's description of the reticence of women who had chosen to attend a major women's convention suggests that a pro-suffrage position in the 1890s was still a daring radical stance. Having attended a convention of the newly merged National American Women Suffrage Association, referred to as NASA, Carol later recalled, when the members of the association were registering their protest against a certain injustice, I arose and said, as a colored woman, I hope this association will include in the resolution the injustices of various kinds of which colored people are the victims. Are you a member of this association? Miss Susan B. Anthony asked. No, I am not, I replied, but I thought you might be willing to listen to a plea for justice by an outsider. Then, Miss Anthony invited me to come forward, write out the resolution, which I wished incorporated with the others, and hand it to the Committee on Resolutions, and thus began a delightful, helpful friendship. Anthony subsequently invited Terrell to speak to the Political Equality Club in Rochester, and acting on her social equality principles, 
Anthony hosted her as a guest in her home. Although Terrell was prominent and well-respected, she regularly described her status and the status of all Black women as inescapably circumscribed by race. A white woman has only one handicap to overcome, that of sex. Colored men have only one, that of race. I have two, both sex and race. I belong to the only group in the country which has two such huge obstacles to surmount. Terrell explained that African-American women call ourselves colored not because we are narrow and wish to lay special emphasis on the color of our skin, but because the, our peculiar status in this country at the present time seems to demand that we stand by ourselves in the special work for which we have organized. The members of the new National uh, Association of Colored Women came together in 1896 with Mary Church Terrell as their president to defend black womanhood by combating the intersecting forces of sexism and racism. And this is a photo from 1896. And here with the hat with the fruit and the feathers is Mary Church Terrell. Um, over here on the ground is uh, Ida B. Wells Barnett and her son, Charles Barnett above, who is in the hands of Alice Dunbar Nelson, a writer and activist in her own right. So leading black club women recognize that the struggle for the vote must extend full citizenship to all African-Americans. Voting rights for black women were always inseparable from questions of black men's disenfranchisement and the broader black freedom struggle. Carol appreciated Anthony's personal warmth, but recognized that Anthony was increasingly ignoring the concerns of African-Americans as she led a narrowing of the white suffrage movement's focus from a broader women's rights platform told the sole goal of gaining national voting rights for white women. Anthony and white suffragists also disrespected other black suffragists. In 1897, when Adela Hunt Logan, the accomplished lady principal of Booker T. Washington's Tuskegee Institute, asked Anthony if she could speak at a NASA convention, Anthony replied, I would not on any account bring on our platform a woman who had a 10,000th part of a drop of African blood in her veins who should prove an inferior speaker because it would militate so against the colored race. Ignoring Logan's accomplishments, Anthony assumed that having an ex-slave at the podium would be a humiliating disaster. Unfortunately, Anthony and other white suffrage leaders focused so narrowly on white women's suffrage that they were willing to sacrifice others to achieve their goal. However, disingenuously, Anthony claimed that once women got the right to vote, racial justice would prevail, that any means to get women the vote would hasten the demise of both sexism and racism. At the 1898 National American Women's Suffrage Association Convention, a pregnant Mary Church Terrell gave a major speech determined to engage in social justice causes less than two months before her due date. Her husband wrote to her father exclaiming, she is the only colored woman invited to speak. 
The other speakers will be women such as Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Frances Willard. After the event, and bursting with pride, he reported back, Molly immortalized herself last night before the Women's Suffrage Convention. She made a magnificent address in admirable style. The theater was filled with the best men and women of the country and their reception of Molly's speech amounted to an ovation. To emphasize just how well her speech was received, he wrote that several white women went so far as to hug and kiss her when the meeting closed. White and colored people mounted the stage and fairly took her off her feet. It was indeed the greatest triumph of her life. Referring to segregation and racial barriers, he noted, when white women publicly embrace a colored woman, you know the reason for it must be strong. This speech and its reception allowed the Terrell couple to take their minds off of her fourth risky pregnancy and focus on their mutual support for women's suffrage. Fortunately, soon after they welcomed their first healthy living child, a daughter named after the Black Revolutionary Era poet, Phyllis Wheatley. Depending upon whether Terrell was addressing a Black or a white audience, she shifted her approach to the subject of women's voting rights. For instance, in her 1906 article, In the Voice of the Negro, she assumed that many of her readers would be Black men, and so paid a pointed tribute to Susan B. Anthony soon after her death. Although Terrell did not condone Anthony's move away from advocating for African-American uh, rights after the Civil War, she did point to the Reconstruction era betrayal of the Republican Party of white and black women's goal of universal suffrage as an explanation, but not a justification. Anthony and many other black and white women had been deeply disappointed when abolitionist men had rejected the goal of universal suffrage in favor of the 14th and 15th amendments that enfranchised only black men and not women of either race. In the decades after the Civil War, Susan B. Anthony solicited African-American men's support for women's suffrage without granting reciprocal support for their full citizenship rights. Yet. Terrell nonetheless appreciated what Anthony had done for the cause of women's suffrage. Much later, in 1928, for instance, Terrell was the only African-American woman to have her name inscribed on a plaque unveiled at a commemoration of Anthony and the early women's rights movement. Terrell's education and light skin tone gave her some access to white suffragists. She repeatedly tried to engage in an interracial dialogue by networking with and challenging white suffragists, including in more intimate social settings. For instance, in 1910, she wrote in her diary, I heard Mrs. Ida Harper, the suffragist and biography biographer of Susan B. Anthony, lecture on the evolution of the woman suffrage movement in an elegant apartment. Wealthy white women were present. When, as Terrell described it, Mrs. Harper criticized colored men for opposing women's suffrage. Terrell forcefully responded to the assembled women, insisting that white men have done the same. After women of the American Revolution helped to free white men from England's tyranny, these same men placed a yoke upon their necks and taxed them without representation, she reminded them. 
But later, during the reception, when Harper directly asked Carol if she felt bad about her critique of black men, Carol did not want to shut down her access to these white women and the spaces where she could make these challenges, and so she denied that her feelings had been hurt. Regardless of white women's stance, black suffragists always simultaneously pursued their own voting rights agenda. In 1908, for example, Carol and other NACW leaders petitioned for a constitutional amendment to extend the vote to all women and asked for protections for black men's voting rights. One section resolved that we, the members of the Equal Suffrage League, representing the National Association of Colored Women through its suffrage department, in the interest of enfranchisement and taxation with representation, ask to have enacted such legislation as will enforce the 14th and 15th amendments of the Constitution of our country, the United States of America, throughout all its sections. They wanted Black men to be able to vote. After all, any new woman's suffrage amendment would be immediately undermined in the South just as the Reconstruction Amendments had been, unless Congress passed strong and effective enforcement provisions and the relevant government agencies actually enforced them. In addition to public speeches and writings, Mary Church Terrell found more militant and direct suffrage activism appealing. Terrell had long known of and admired the radical techniques employed by British women. For instance, she had recorded in her 1909 diary, I went to hear Mrs. Emmeline Pankhurst, the militant suffragette, and enjoyed her address immensely. Thus, Terrell eagerly joined in a major direct action in the U.S., the 1913 National Votes for Women Parade. Alice Paul and Lucy Burns organized this huge suffrage parade for the National American Women Suffrage Association for March 3rd, 1913, which was the day before Woodrow Wilson's inauguration. Alice Paul, a young college-educated Quaker, tried at first to exclude Black women in order to pacify Southern white suffragists. Now, I'm going to take some time to describe what really happened for Black women at this march, because it's something that most historians and popular culture have missed. Most historical and popular cultural accounts correctly describe the anti-lynching activist and suffragist Ida B. Wells Barnett's refusal to march in a segregated delegation at the back of the parade and rightly celebrate her defiant insertion of herself into an otherwise all-white Illinois delegation. What is less well-known is that this was not a solitary act of one defiant woman. From what I had learned of Carol as I was writing my biography, I could not imagine that she had agreed to march segregated at the back, although she must have if Wells Barnett really was the only one who resisted. So I decided to research her participation more carefully. What I found is something that a few Black women's historians had already told us, but that has not been accepted as the real story. Many dozens of Black women, including Terrell, marched all throughout the first suffrage parade in the nation's capital. 
Those black suffragists who joined state delegations were at the back, but only because organizers had a carefully choreographed chart for the parade and planned for all the states to assemble there. A black Chicago newspaper captured the scene that day. The equal suffrage parade was viewed by thousands of people from all parts of the US. No color line existed in any part of it. Afro-American women proudly marched right by the side of the white sisters. Carol served as a mentor to Howard University's new Delta Sigma Theta sorority, whose members organized to take action in politics and reform movements. Terrell, who wrote the oath for the Deltas and became an honorary lifetime member, negotiated with Alice Paul on their behalf. The members wanted to march together. The key question was whether they would be able to march along with the other contingents of college women. A telegraph from the Suffrage Association to Alice Paul on the day of the parade capitulated to protests from Black women agreeing that Black suffragists could march without restrictions. Carol explained that when some of the white suffragists still objected to having the colored girls of Howard University march in the parade, it was Terrell's friend, the lawyer and suffragist Inez Mulholland, who insisted that they be given a place with the pupils of the other schools. Dressed in their caps and gowns, the 25 Howard University Deltas marched alongside the other college delegations, not at the back. Mary Beard, the feminist and progressive U.S. historian, invited Terrell and other NACW members to stride alongside the New York City Women's Suffrage Party, which they did. Black women even carried the state banner for New York and Michigan. As, Cliff, as Carrie Clifford's recounted in the NAACP's The Crisis, Black suffragists marched as artists, homemakers, trained nurses, teachers, writers, college graduates, and musicians, among others. An editorial by NAACP leader W.B. Du Bois described the politics surrounding the participation of Black suffragists. The Women's Suffrage Party had a hard time settling the status of Negroes in the Washington parade. Finally, an order went out to segregate them in the parade, but telegrams and protests poured in and eventually the colored women marched according to their state and occupation without let or hindrance. Du Bois captured the fluidity and chaos of the situation, as well as the resolve of the black women who organized, protested, and won the capitulation of the white suffragists. If we better understood that black suffragists collectively fought for and won the right to participate throughout, we would have a different story to tell of Black women's pivotal role in the suffrage movement. Despite their differences, Terrell continued to admire Alice Paul's use of direct action. During World War I, she and her daughter Phyllis, then in her late 20s, were among only a few Black women who are documented as having joined the National Women's Party in peacefully picketing in front of the White House. Carrying banners that called for women's voting rights, Terrell willingly risked arrest and violent attacks. The women who picketed were called traitors for protesting the U.S. government policies during wartime, but persisted nonetheless. 
Um, thank you. I'd be happy to answer any questions you might have, including on how the story of women's suffrage fits into the larger biography of Mary Church Terrell. Thank you. Thank you so very much, Professor Parker. That was wonderful and a very uh, complex, actually, set of uh, conversations around Mary Church Terrell. Um, I'm from Chicago, so we say Terrell. I've, I've known about it since second grade, which is funny. Uh, but uh, I think you all say Terrell, which I, I well, get it. Her, fa her family told me it's Terrell, so I Terrell. had to, I had to so change my... Terrell. So, so that's okay. So that's yeah. even that's that's a southern uh, way of saying it as well. Well, if you would exactly. like to ask questions, we are here. Uh, Professor Parker is here to take questions from the audience. We really want you to ask any questions that might be on your mind. Um, you know, I can throw out one if I don't see any, but I definitely uh, think this is a great opportunity uh, to have some Q and A before uh, the panel that we're having shortly thereafter. I know you're out there thinking, so I'll, I'll just ask a, a very quick question. Um, who would you say are some of the interlocutors of uh, Mary Church Terrell? <laughs> I'm trying, right? Um, you know, who would you say were her, her main interlocutors and those folks who had her? Because I often think about who had her political ear, right? Who was in her ear uh, beyond Susan B. Anthony and those folks? But, like, who were the, the folks who she was in conversation with? Um, she was in conversation with a lot of other Black women who are associated with a kind of early intersectional politics and feminism as well. She was um, a classmate of Anna Julia Cooper, who was another Black intellectual, um, also went to Oberlin College, um, as well as Ida Gibbs Hunt, who was from another very uh, prestigious African-American family and spent time with her husband, who was an ambassador um, and served abroad. And um, then as time grew on, she met people like um, Mary McLeod Bethune and um, Margaret Murray Washington and a whole variety of other women. Since she lived, she was born enslaved in Memphis, Tennessee, and then um, that was during the Civil War, so she was only enslaved for two years, and then um, lived in Memphis until she went to school um, as a young girl in the North because her parents wanted her to get a better education, and they had set up their own uh, businesses, so were able to pay for her to get an education. And then um, she lived until 1954, the same year as Brown v. Board of Education. And so this incredibly long life means that she was um, friends with and collaborated with so many different kinds of activists because she was literally active for 60 years. So the part that I talked oh. about, I know, so the part that I talked about today is the tedious part of her story, but it's a very interesting part, and it is the part that connects the most with uh, Rochester and uh, Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass. She met Frederick Douglass at an inaugural ball 
um, for Harrison um, in the 1870s. And then um, when she moved to Washington, D.C., they became friends and collaborators, and he was her mentor. So they ended up um, inviting Ida B. Wells to come and um, give talks on anti-lynching right after uh, the murder of Thomas Moss and their other friends and collaborators in Memphis. Um, and that was in 1892, 1893. So she only um, worked with him for the last few years of his life since Frederick Douglass died in 1895. But um, she, was, she was the one who founded um, Frederick Douglass Day, the first day um, to really commemorate him in a public school system. And she did it because as the quote that you had at the beginning said, he um, was somebody who supported suffrage from early on. And she really uh, appreciated that he was both, he was an intersectional activist yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. We got a lot of questions out here for you. So look, I'm, I'm glad we, we primed. Okay. Um, so one of the questions out here uh, is, did Terrell have a relationship with the League of Women Voters? Um, yeah, she did. I, uh, the League of Women Voters was not entirely open to black women early on. And um, they've actually taken some responsibility for that more recently and have looked more introspectively at their past. So she wasn't able to fully engage with them, um, although she would meet their members because their members were also members of other organizations that she was involved in. She was an active Republican because like almost all black women until the 1930s in the New Deal, they were Republicans as in the Republican Party, the Party of Lincoln. So if we think about it that way, that's where that came from. Beautiful. So what did Terrell's suffrage activism look like post the 19th Amendment? So after the 19th Amendment, she wanted to participate in the National Women's Party that Alice Paul had, in spite of the fact that she knew, or maybe because she knew, that Alice Paul was not going to take uh, black women's concerns seriously unless they inserted themselves in these organizations. So even as they always had their own organizations, they believed strongly in the need to have um, organizations that were, um, they needed to join white women whenever they could. Um, so she asked Alice Paul if the National Association of Colored Women could be um, a member of the National Women's Party. And Alice Paul said no, because she claimed that it was not a party that or a group that focused on gender and feminism, but on race. So she was completely unable to see intersectionality. And so um, Alice Paul and Carol and several other women met together and had this kind of heated exchange. And Terrell was allowed to come as a visiting delegate to talk at the um, 1921 convention. And she was a, a lifelong member of the National Women's Party, but she was never able to break through Alice Paul's very singular approach to white women's equality. Yeah, that's, that's really, really helpful. Um, a couple more questions out here. Uh, we have about five more minutes, so it's great. Um, so this is a, 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 a big question. Maybe I'll, I'll couple them together um, in terms of thinking, how did Carol and others 
balance activism, careers, and family life? Like, what support systems did they have, networks? Yeah, that's a really great question. I mean, one thing that I tried to allude to uh, by mentioning that her pregnancy that was successful was her fourth is that she had had a series of tragic um, situations with late miscarriages, a stillbirth, and then a baby who lived for two days but then died in a segregated D.C. hospital with an improvised incubator. And she always believed that racism was involved. So kind of like Serena Williams, here you have one of the most elite um, and fairly well-off Black woman of her day um, who is unable to get good maternity care, right? So, so she really believed and felt the need to fight for Black women's health and welfare and the health and welfare of their families. So when she became the president of the National Association of Colored Women in 1896, you know, she still hadn't had a successful pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And um, this was incredibly important to her. So she founded the first kindergartens for black children and helped um, create day nurseries, but also advocated for black women to become nurses and doctors because she knew what now scientists say is true, that black doctors and nurses provide better care because they're invested in the health of black women. So to do all of this work, and once she had her own baby, her mother retired from her career as a a hair salon owner and came down um, from New York uh, where she was living to Washington, D.C. to help be um, a child care provider for their child. And she had a very supportive husband who was equally interesting, Robert uh, H. Terrell, who had been enslaved for the first seven years of his life, but ended up graduating from Harvard University and getting a law degree from Howard University and becoming the first municipal court judge in Washington, D.C., who was Black. So they were a power couple, and she could not have done what she did without his support because um, it was she was really stepping outside of the boundaries of what um, Black and white women were expected to be doing. So she, he did receive pressure, but he was very supportive of her career. Great. Thank you so much. There's one last question pressing there that I'm sure a lot of folks are asking. And uh, one uh, contributor asked this question, which was, what would you say is the legacy of Mary Church Terrell today? Is it Stacey Abrams? I mean, is it Michelle Obama? Like, where do we find, where do you position uh, the legacy? Um, Both of those women would be a good place to start, but also Kamala Harris, because one of the things that um, she was really interested in is Terrell was a political being. And she said if she had lived at a different time, she would have wanted to be a senator. And truthfully, I think she would have wanted to be president. Um, but she was unable to run. And so the, the best thing that she could find was she ended up working on a white woman's campaign, the, one of the first white women to um, win a primary Um, but she didn't win the election, uh, Ruth Hannah McCormick, in 1930. Um, And it took another, I think, 30 30 years for a white woman to win and 60 years for a black woman to win into the Senate. Um, So she was way before her time. But um, Kamala Harris, in her um, acceptance speech, actually mentioned um, Mary Church Terrell as one of her 
predecessors who had paved the way for her. So I'd like to make that claim as somebody who we could look to. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking time with us to answer these wonderful questions. And thank the audience for uh, these great questions and really being engaged. Uh, we now are going to move to our panel discussion. And so I am going to introduce my wonderful colleague, June Wan, who is the director of the Susan B. Anthony Institute of Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies, and also an associate professor of German. My esteemed colleague, June, how are you? Hi, thanks very much. Um, thanks, Jeffrey, and thank you, Allison, for sharing um, your important and fascinating work. Uh, so Allison will be joined by our esteemed panelists uh, to talk more about the important role Black women have played in changing the culture and institutions that have perpetuated inequality throughout the United States the challenges and repercussions they encounter, and the profound resilience they possess in the face of adversity, um, all in 20 minutes, <laughs> right? Uh, so clearly we're not gonna be able to discuss everything, but um, so let me start by um, introducing the panelists, and then I will essentially take a step back and let them speak with each other. Um, but you, the audience is also welcome to ask questions and I will try to weave them into the conversation. Um, so the first panelist I'm going to introduce is Ananda Benbo. She, uh, class of 2015, who is using her passion for language and issues in education to host the Black Language Podcast, featuring conversations about Black people and their languages. Um, Ananda, if you could turn on your camera, please. Thank you. <laughs> um, the next panelist is Tiffany Taylor-Smith, class of 1991 a doctoral candidate and assistant vice president for diversity and inclusion at the University of Dayton and co-chair of the University of Rochester's Women's Network. Welcome. And the last panelist is Brianna Theobald, an assistant professor of history here at the University of Rochester. Uh, she teaches classes on U.S. women's history and the history of Native America. Um, so, Maybe just to start off, um, we can have, I'll just throw out a general question to start the conversation. Uh, thinking about sort of stories like that, that of Mary Church Terrell, um, how, what role is, does the telling of these stories and of learning about people like Mary Church Terrell have for our current day um, and maybe even sort of more personally for you as scholars, as activists? Would anyone like to start? <laughs> well, well, I'll take it. I, I think as, as a scholar and as a practitioner, even just hearing um, the work and research that Allison has done, which thank you, Allison, I, part of it is like, okay, what, what intrigued you about this project? But that's a sidebar. Um, I, I want to thank you for your research and your work and sharing of that. And I think for me, as a practitioner in diversity, equity, and inclusion, even in our current climate, it is so important that we learn these stories. I mean, I continue, and I, I graduated from the university in 1991. I'm a mother of three daughters, um, and I still struggle, and, and someone who is pursuing a doctorate degree, the stories that were not taught to me. Um, as, as, a, as a high school student, as an elementary student, as a um, someone pursuing her bachelor's degree, unless I took specific courses, and someone who's earned a master's degree and is now pursuing her PhD, 
it, it is continuing to be clear to all many who choose to acknowledge there are a lot of stories that have been omitted from U.S. history um, in so many ways. And, and, and we're at this moment of truth, this is time of somewhat reconciliation, where we have an opportunity, particularly those who are in education, to really look at what are we missing? Um, and, and to benefit from, from Allison's work around how do we understand the story? And what were the complexities that were involved in the experiences that she had um, in trying to move the, to move the movement, if you will, uh, for women's suffrage and engage Black women? And, and, and you know, I, I, I often wonder, too, as, as a, as a light-skinned Black woman, how that influenced her ability to be in these spaces. As a light-skinned Black woman, I, I find myself often puzzled by that as well, the way in which I'm received in different spaces and how that impacts my ability to ally, champion, or be an accomplice for others who are not in those spaces. Yeah, um, to add, um, I feel like as a young Black woman, it's um, it's been really important for me to know that since enslavement and perhaps you know, beyond, Black women have always had an analysis of not just race, but where race and gender intersect. Um, and I think that that means that for Black people of multiple identities, sexual orientation, ability, class, that there's always been an analysis, you know, an intersectional analysis. Um, and so, sorry, I took some notes on this, and so I just want to make sure I'm getting everything, so I like the way I put it. Um, and so, oh, yeah, and so it means that, like, when current generations, like myself, are silent um, or told that we're too sensitive, right, or told that we're making things up, like we're making up terms and we're making up, you know, uh, identities, where it's like, one, all terms and identities are, to some, you know, are, are made up, but two, it's like that just comes from complete ignorance. Um, it comes from lives meant to derail us when we know that we have always existed, right? This work has always existed. And so I think when we hear stories like that, um, and, uh, I think for those of us who are doing work, right, with our communities, it's really empowering, right, to know that, you know, Black feminism did not start in the 70s, like will often be told to us, right? And that, in fact, you know, we've always been doing this work when I think about Black women, um, doing birth work during enslavement, right? And so, like, we've always been intersectional about our practices. And so I think for me, when I think about these stories and think about my day-to-day -day work, in addition to the podcast, I also work at a high school. It's about how am I creating an environment um, that's safe for my students, um, that's safe for students with, you know, um, with multiple identities, and how am I, one, keeping up with the times and knowing how the world is changing, right, so I can be a better advocate for them. Um, yeah, so I, I think that that's, that's a, great, a great and such an important point to think about these long legacies of, of Black women as um, Black women and other women of color. So my own research is in um, Indigenous women, Native American women, but um, so Black women and women of color as theorists, right, doing, doing um, in, in various ways and through experience and so many other things, right, doing really important theory, um, have this, these legacies of, of important um, um, intersectional feminist theory. And then the other thing that I was thinking of is, um, you know, I think with this, there's this way to, to get back into to Tiffany's point about how 
histories are told or not told, right? I, I think that there's this way in which sometimes when we think about um, activist histories, that the the activists can sort of, um, you know, it's like they're in the distant past, right? Um, and their lives are somehow just kind of decontextualized. I mean, they are like activists, right? And so there's, we get this kind of pub, their public lives, some of their public work. And I think what, what, what I was thinking about that's really helpful about reading a biography like this, that really gets at the texture of um, Terrell's, Terrell's life, right? As a, as a, um, a full person who's, struggling, right, going through all of these real struggles alongside her work, as, you know, so many people are, like, that's the reality, right, of, mm-hmm. of activist work and these histories of activist work, and there's a way in which, as I was, as I was reading it, there is a way in which I think that looking at one person's life like that in such complexity and depth, and, and, and situating her in these, this evolving historical context can also serve to remind us in this moment, um, that we are also historical actors, right, in ways that I think sometimes, um, at least at the, the kind of student level, we can almost forget, right, that, that we study history in the past, these women's stories, um, but you think of so many of the issues, right, that she was, that it, with which Terrell engaged, um, maternal, uh, maternal health, right, and healthcare, um, educational curriculum, you know, 1619 project, right? How do we understand our histories? Um, uh, police brutality, um, voting rights, right? Um, I mean, so many of these historical um, issues are issues that folks are, of course, struggling with today. And I, I think it's useful to remember that we are historical actors in a historical moment that future generations and future scholars, right, will be analyzing as well. Yeah, I mean, you all raised such really interesting points. And I do think that when you look at the life of one Black woman in the past, we can learn a lot from that. And one thing that I think is important is this idea of taking people out of one particular moment in their life or one particular action that they're best known for. Um, Like in her case, she's best known as the president of the National Association of Colored Women. But that was actually like one of her earliest acts. And then she had decades and decades of activism after that. And just like Rosa Parks is, is pretty much known for sitting on the bus, but she was an activist for many decades before that happened. And um, people aren't aware of her big involvement in the NAACP, mm-hmm. although there's been a lot of work now, especially through uh, biographies that have been coming out recently that have tried to help to kind of unpack some of that. And in the case of Terrell, I, going back to what Tiffany was talking about with her light skin color and privilege and how that played a part for her in getting access to white communities. She was aware of that and she used it to her advantage whenever she could. One of the things that she regularly did is go speak to governors about getting pardons or other ways to try to end death sentences to black women who were poor and uneducated and very dark skinned usually and who were in prison. Um, Some of them were even teenagers um, with death sentences. And then after she would meet with the governor in the state, whether it was Virginia or whether it was um, 
Georgia or other places, she would then go and get access to the women in prison and meet them there. So she wasn't an elite in the sense of elitist, that she wouldn't, uh, you know, use her, she used her power as much as she had it to try to gain access to people and help change their lives. So um, she was aware of that, and what, but was very conscious about it. And um, she, the term unceasing militant that I used for the title of the book actually comes from a friend and associate of hers, the actor and activist and singer Paul Robeson, who described her as an unceasing militant in the struggle for black freedom. And so that was his um, obituary, in fact, for her when she died. And it seemed to me that it was a really meaningful thing to talk about her as someone who uh, was unceasing in her militancy, which doesn't mean that she also didn't make compromises or go uh, join these meetings with white women that were, you know, somewhat problematic because she always wanted to be in those spaces to be the voice of dissent. But it does mean that she also worked with communists. And she, um, you know, when the NAACP decided that it didn't want to take on cases of black men accused uh, wrongly of rape, like with the uh, Scottsboro Nine, she worked with the Communist Party to try to get them freed. So um, she was really willing to step out of line, if you want to put it that way, and to do direct action like the picketing um, that she started with um, the National Women's Party in World War I uh, and continued all the way up to the end when she led a successful campaign to desegregate Washington, D.C. in 1953, so before uh, Montgomery, Alabama, and before Brown v. Board. Um, maybe, does anybody have any questions within the panel for each other? I mean, I have some questions as well, but I wanted to give you a chance in case you have something that you would like to ask each other. One of the things I just wanted to, to raise, I think, is, is, is evident in the way that which Allison tells the story, and it's so important in what we see today. Regardless of our identities, even embedded in the story, you see other women who, there were women who were against her participating because of her, her race, but there were also women who advocated and allied and championed for her. And, and even in telling the story, Allison, that you share with us, had those women not stepped up, there were certain ways in which she would have been blocked from being able to accomplish what she was able to do. And, and for me, that raises the question, given our positionality, regardless of our identity, how we advocate for others, what, whether they be LGBTQ+, um, Asian American, Asian Pacific Islander identities, um, as well as indigenous identities. Like how, regardless of our own, how we advocate, ally, and champion, um, and accomplice in many ways for identities that we don't belong to. How important that is, and I think that that's very transparent in your story that there were those women. Um, and some men who were willing to say she needs to be a part of this. We need to have them in this space engaging in the suffrage movement. Well, mm -hmm. and I would just add to that, which I think is a really important point, not maybe regardless of, but also very much because of, right? I mean, I think that the ways we're not something is also important. Um, and I'm saying this as a Korean American who does German Jewish studies, right? Um, that the ways in which I'm not German and Jewish are very much about me being Korean American. And so I think 
um, when we think about allyship, it is also important to think about not only sort of what the, what the positions are that we're looking at, but what, where we're coming, where we're positioned within those things, right? Yeah, and one of the things that you make me think about is this question of being willing to be uncomfortable and to have difficult conversations and to put yourself in with people who are different from you and learn and listen and think about what they're saying and then try to figure out um, how you want to interact with that. And Carol did that, but I think a lot of contemporary women have to do the same kind of thing with each other and with others to make this work. And it's a whole life balance piece for me, too. I mean, I, I didn't know the story about her um, four miscarriage, well, three, and then the fourth birth of her child. Like, that's the, the multiple dualities that we carry as women. We're not just these, these workers, these advocates, these social justice champions. We also have personal lives. And really thinking about, I think that was the piece for me, just understanding it, the, the significance of that that that's not separate like that is a part of who she is she was living and thankfully uh, through the support of her partner was really able to continue to do the work that she did so again that's one of those ones where I appreciate that being a part of the story as well um I would in thinking about Tiffany and Tiffany's kind of comments about allyship and um and really coalition building too, right? And how we think about coalitions and then thinking about what, what June said as well. Um, so a lot of in my research and so my kind of intellectual and some political commitments, right? I'm very interested in, in reproductive justice, which is um, a, a term coined by black feminists in the 1990s um, but that stems out of, of um, histories of, of um, reproductive oppression and also uh, long histories um, uh, of, of reproductive activism, right, by, uh, by Black women and Indigenous women and women of color. Um, and one of the things in, in that literature that I've really noticed as a theme is, because um, coalitions have been so important to, to this reproductive justice work. Um, it is a movement kind of based on, on coalition building. And they, they've been, they talk about um, this idea of solidarity through difference. Right. So that that actually like the, the process to, to kind of June's point of, of forming these coalitions actually requires some understanding in, in at least many of the situations in which they're talking about of understanding our differences, too. And I think so one of the ways that that becomes really important is actually understanding the differences in terms of, um, say, uh, indigenous women relationship right to the state right and to their tribal nation and that their goals might be somewhat different um but that there's kind of room for ground if we understand each other and i think in the work that's come out on on suffrage um the historical work that's come out in the last couple of years right to to commemorate um, the centennial i think that there's been a lot of emphasis on the ways in which these different coalitions can actually help to expand the way we even think historically about suffrage, right? For, for many black women, it was, it was connected to racial justice. It was a, a tool, right, for racial justice, particularly lynching was important for, for many Native women. Um, it, um, it was, it had a lot to do with indigenous, with tribal sovereignty, right, and indigenous cultures. For many Hispanic women, I'm drawing on Kathleen Cahill's work here, for many Hispanic speaking, Spanish speaking women in the Southwest, right, it was tied to and was a tool for language. 
And so I think that, like, when we know all of that, um, thinking about these coalitions that developed are actually in some ways all the more impressive and important to understand, right, because that we don't get that story if we're just thinking about what, um, you know, what Rochester's own Sue B, right, how she was conceptualizing all this, and that, that, that makes it harder to understand um, the, the, the real coalitions that developed at least at particular points. Do you, I mean, what do you all think then about, I was just coming back to where we started this conversation to think about sort of the ways in which we learn these stories, right? And I'm thinking about the ways in which there's sort of, at least in my educational experience, there was sort of African-American history, Asian-American history, right? And then white history was sort of the regular history, right? And so that these things are so separated that it's, I think the reason why it's often surprising to learn about these coalitions is because of the way that we're taught these things or the way that we're under, we're sort of taught or we're trained to sort of categorize these things as this is this type of history or women's history more generally, right? That women's history is separated from sort of history, which is, you know, male history then, right? So um, I don't know exactly what the question here is. I guess it would just be, you know, what your thoughts are about um, ways in which you've seen sort of movements against this or ways to sort of undermine this particular sort of categorization. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess one of the things that I found useful about doing a biography of a black woman who lived from 1863 to 1954 is that it was a way to write a different story of American history. And by using her as somebody who I could talk about, there's a whole section on various aspects of her political transformation um, as African-Americans in general move into the Democratic Party and then also the um, smearing of all civil rights activists as communists as you move toward um, World War II and beyond in the Cold War era. And so just every part of this one person's life is also just a way to kind of reframe the history and to think more broadly and in a longer a period of time about what civil rights activism looks like. The civil rights movement often is seen as starting in the 40s or 50s, but if you think about a longer, and other historians have been trying to talk about, you know, how long is the civil rights movement and where, how far back can we take it? Um, but if you're thinking about it as a black freedom struggle, uh, you can take it pretty far back. And these women and men in coalition are absolutely doing that. Um, but her work intersects with all kinds of other groups and she's a pacifist and works with um, the International Women's League for uh, Women's Peace and Freedom and um, travels abroad and actually speaks five languages and is fluent in you know German and um, French and Italian and then teaches Latin and Greek. Um, and so she's somebody who has this incredible uh, facility with language and is the only black woman who appears as a representative and speaks 
at several so-called international women's conferences in Europe in the early 20th century. And she pointed out that it was um, a very bizarre thing to be the only woman of color in a so-called international conference. Um, but what that, I guess, really meant is that it was um, a European and American women's conference, right? So, so she tried to insert and think about how, how can I stand in and be the voice for all of these people who aren't here. Um, so that kind of liminality and the, the sense that she um, could try to play that role is, is an interesting one. But, but I do think these coalitions are really important. Well, and this question of language too, right? I mean, um, this is, I'm sort of directing this towards Ananza, um, but this question of language and about sort of the ways in which, um, since you are doing a black language podcast as well, I mean, thinking about language and um, the ability to use language to sort of mobilize or the ability to use language to one's advantage, right? And um, so if you could say maybe something about that as well. Yeah, um, I definitely think of it in kind of like two parts. Um, they're not uh, separated, um, but one is like, so Professor Parker just mentioned all the languages that Mary Church Terrell uh, spoke, right? And I'm definitely of the camp that used to say Mary Church Terrell. Um, <laughs> so happy to learn something new today. Um, right, but it's about um, speaking languages across um, across our communities, right? And so, um, if I'm thinking specifically about Black women, right, there's Black women all up and down, um, you know, the Americas and throughout the world who speak different languages. And by and large, many people are going to learn how to speak English as an additional language across the world because it is such. Um, well, the United States has made it so it's a useful language because of the oppression that the United States has caused, right? And so, but it really should be our responsibility to learn the languages of the diaspora, right? So learn the language.